Welcome to the Choose FI radio podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Jonathan and my co-host name is Brad. Together, we are a pharmacist-CPA combination out of Richmond, Virginia. The Choose FI podcast is a podcast by the FI community for the FI community, where FI stands for financial independence. We host a twice-a-week show on Mondays and Fridays. On Monday, we tackle a new topic or idea that can help us get to our goal of FI faster. And on Fridays, we crowdsource feedback from our community, which allows us to go deeper into each topic. Along the way, we try to feature thought leaders from the FI community and explore the infinite number of ways that people tackle this amazing journey. Welcome to the ride and enjoy the show. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Hey, welcome to the show. Today we have Big Earn from Early Retirement Now joining us in the studio, and we're going to be talking about sequence of return risk. This is an episode that's long overdue. It's one that we've been promising you for a long time. It's one that we were very concerned because we wanted to make sure that we got it right. And frankly, Brad and I understood from the beginning that this is one that was above our pay grade. It's not one that we could handle on our own, so we needed to bring in an expert. And frankly, is nobody better to handle this concept than Big Earn from Early Retirement Now. He has a 17 and ever-growing part series on how to do this math, how to understand it and incorporate it into your life. And today, our goal is to take that amazing article series and turn it into a conversation. So we're glad you're here to join us. And I have Brad here with me in the studio. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing well, Jonathan. This is a long-awaited episode. I think it should be a wonderful one. And we're really going to approach this from the point of view of novices. We're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the audience. So this should be a very thorough explanation from a step-by-step point of view, from a, a novice point of view of everything that Big Earn teaches about safe withdrawal rates on his website. So again, there's no better person to go through this. And with that, Earn, thank you and welcome to the show. Excellent. Thanks for having me. This is my first podcast ever, and I'm glad it's here. It's uh, one of my favorite podcasts ever. That is amazing. Thank you so much for the feedback. Yeah, we were super excited to have you contribute to Paul's case study really several months ago now. And we've been just itching to get a chance to jump into this ever since that, because you essentially changed the playing field by talking about the realities of, first of all, just the 4% rule and what that would mean for Paul, but then expanding it to the idiosyncrasies of Paul's specific case with having social security be a reality for him. I don't know why, but a lot of us in the FI space, for whatever reason, just forget that social security is out there. We just, or we just kind of ignore the fact that we may have our own unique circumstances, which may change the playing field slightly. That's right. And I mean, you could say that, well, maybe people are very conservative. They say there's a chance that it will be cut, but it won't be cut by 100%, right? So you'll still have some money in retirement from, from Social Security. And now the, the, the one reason why people could completely ignore it is if they say, well, maybe in retirement, my expenses are going to be higher. So I'm talking about health expenses and nursing homes and stuff like that. So I'll dedicate all of that 
uh, social security income to to that to, to that higher expense. So in, in that case, you could rationalize ignoring social security. But I guess the average person should not. Uh, and uh, then and then again, it, it depends on your personal parameters. How old are you when you retire? If you're very young, you have to discount that social security number by by a lot. So it may not make a big difference for you. But if you're in your early 50s or maybe maybe mid 40s, the social security could could make a big difference in the in the safe withdrawal rate. So I think probably the way we should approach this is first of all just introduce Big Earn and Early Retirement Now to our audience for those that haven't discovered the joys of math. Uh, (laughs) Let's just open this up. How did you discover the FI community and what really got you excited about this concept? Right. So I was already in the in the club of I I was already thinking about early retirement for a long time before before I even heard about the fire community. So I, it was already in the back of my mind and it was good to find people like Mr. Money Mustache and, and Go Curry Cracker. So I liked reading what they have to write, but I thought I, I could also add something because I've, I've always been a math geek and I happen to work in finance too. So I thought I can I can add something to the discussion. I like doing simulations. I like doing big spreadsheets. I like large scale computer programs to do lots of loops over different, over different simulations. So I like to do a lot of the calculations for myself just to see just to see for myself and to understand the the mechanics behind it and I thought since I do it for myself anyways I might as well publish it for others to see too this is this is really cool you're gonna probably get a kick out of this I think you're speaking to an extremely friendly audience because in our community <laughs> the icons are in many cases the geeks it's the people that really have spent the time to create the spreadsheets and then share them what I think so hilarious though is that while I identify hundred percent with what you're saying my idea of doing the excel sheets is learning how the sum feature works on Excel (laughs) and posting that down at the bottom. (laughs) In the meantime, you're doing uh, graphics and simulations of arithmetic versus geometric returns and doing volatility drag and all these other sorts of really crazy high level stuff. So it's a lot of fun to see and also realize that while I was really impressed with how I was able to do a future value calculation on my Excel sheet, you've kind of taken it to the next level on everything across the board. So um, I'm definitely a young Padawan when it comes to Excel. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So and, and, and the, other, <laughs> the, the, the other thing, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who thinks about it that way. Um, so sometimes in, in order to understand complicated stuff or complicated plans, it's it helps you to write it down, right? It's a, it's, it's one thing to think about it. Imagine you you just read and study for an exam, as I say, 20 years ago, and you just read the material. You can read for a whole day, and then at, at the end of the day, you can, well, how much have you read? remembered. Whereas if you take notes and you rephrase and, and, and you distill something like a, a day worth of studying into a few pages of notes, that is much easier to remember it and to understand it. And that's how I view blogging too. So it's, it's obviously a lot of planning. And just doing the planning in your head is, is not working very well. You have to write down your plans to understand what's going on. And uh, so this, especially this, this whole 4% rule mechanics. So all of that made perfect sense to me, but I definitely wanted to look more into the details and do my own calculations. Yeah, and that makes sense. And we're certainly going to get very in-depth into the 4% rule and all your articles. So, But I'm actually more curious about the origin story of Big Earn. So, oh, sure. You know, you yeah. said, and we don't generally do this with our guests, you know, we like to really get into the meat of it, but I'm really curious about you. So you said you've been thinking about early retirement for a while, you know, predating finding Mr. Money Mustache and a bunch of these other blogs. Like, tell me about your origin story. So you graduated from university, you went to your first job. Like, did you fall into the trap of spending money? Have you always been a saver? Obviously, you are fantastic with math and at a completely different 
different level from from most people. Like, did you conceptually understand this just intuitively, or you know, just talk me through your thought process? Uh, yeah, sure. So I grew up in another country. I went to college there, and it was a great deal. I could go to college there for free. I had a little bit of a student loan, but I didn't even need the money. So I basically invested the money, then paid it back, and actually had a positive net worth when when I graduated. Can we just pause on that for just a second? Like, you're the heart blood of the Phi community. This is what gaming things out actually looks like. While everybody else is racking up 40 to 60 grand of student loans, the second gen Phi pitch absolutely has to be, yeah, go get all the student loans, but then figure out how to do it for free and then invest it. Or, right, or rather, right. go get all the scholarships, but then figure out how to do it for free and then invest it. Right. right. So, so the good news was, so I went to college in my hometown and I lived with my parents and I had some student loans and yeah, I mean, I didn't need the money. I lived with mom and dad. I didn't need to pay rent. I didn't have to pay for food. I kind of paid for basically incidentals. Uh, then tuition was very cheap and it's not unlike, say, the, the American public university or, or definitely co- compared to private university tuition here. And uh, so, again, I had a kind of the mindset that I don't want to get into debt. And I, I, because I grew up, I wouldn't say that I grew up poor, but I grew up lower middle class. I would almost thank my parents for being not so financially educated and sophisticated. So they never got into debt uh, and I never got into debt. There were, there were no credit cards back then. And uh, it, it, was almost, it was almost a religious belief that you spend less than what you make. And even if you're a poor student, and even if, I mean, think about it, you're a student and you realize that in the future you will make a lot more money, right? Why not go into debt? Why not smooth that consumption stream, go a little bit into debt and pay it back later? It seems like the rational thing to do, but to me, it just seemed a big no-no. So no matter how poor I was, I always wanted to save a little bit on the side. So this is just out of principle. So at which point did you decide early retirement could be a reality for me because that is not a no- I mean everybody is telling you 60 year timeline you're going to retire at 60 right. or 65 right. how did you decide maybe 40 is the new 65 maybe 30 is the new 65 maybe this alternate choice is going to be a reality for me what was that light bulb moment um I mean I always wanted to do a little bit of early retirement, say instead of 65, say do 62 or 60. So that was always in the back of my mind. And basically over time, I walked down this number. And uh, so for a while, I thought, okay, I'm going to save a million dollars by the time I'm 50. So that was my my aim for a long time. And then fast forwards, I came to the US for graduate school, worked here for a few years uh, in, in academia, but then moved over to, to Wall Street. And uh, after that, I realized two things. First of all, a million dollars isn't what it used to be. And nobody has job safety until age 50. So you probably want to increase your saving a little bit, lower the target retirement date, and then also shoot for a slightly bigger number just to have a cushion there. Well, we're glad you made the choices you did. And it's going to give us the opportunity today to discuss really the technical meat. And since that is what you have spent, I would say probably hundreds, if not thousands of hours researching and then essentially using your own words, distilling on paper, we can all benefit from that work. And then today, hopefully turn it into a conversation. So today we wanted to talk about a portion of your series called The Ultimate Guide to Safe Withdrawal Rates. And we're really going to focus today on sequence of return risk. So I know that we touched on this on another episode that we did recently, but I'd love to, first of all, just get you to kind of essentially unpack the problem for us. Why do we need to be concerned in the context of the 4% rule? Why do we need to be concerned about sequence of return risk? So it's, it's, it's amazing because it took me until apparently episode 14 
brain to to even to even write a whole post on sequence of return risk. But obviously, sequence of return risk that is the big gorilla in the room. That's the that's the reason why people run out of money. It's not so much that average returns are so low, especially if you are comfortable with say exhausting your net worth over your retirement. You you don't even you don't even need a particularly high average return. So ima- imagine somebody offered you something like two or three percent real return for sure for your entire retirement horizon, then nobody ever has to worry about the 4% rule. You can just exhaust your capital, you live off the income and the principal, and uh, your money should last for 30, 40, 50, or 60 years. And the only reason really why people run out of money is that they get unlucky and the first five to 10 years, they have very low returns and uh, that exhausts the capital by enough that there's no point of return. And then obviously you could you could argue, would anybody ever really run out of money because they wouldn't run out of money but then after 10 years or so they realize that we have to really really cut expenses by say 50% or, or do a side hustle so that's what I noticed the failure probabilities they're 100% correlated with having some bad luck early on and it's, it's not so much related to the average return over your retirement horizon so earn two questions you use the term real returns in there right and, right. you know, we want to really break this down for the audience. So we're going to ask stupid questions, if you don't mind. So no. define what real returns are. And then Sorry. you said secondarily early on in your retirement. So I guess define like as far as sequence of return risk, what years you would be concerned about there being low returns or a downturn, et cetera. So real returns, everything I calculate is all done to, to adjust for inflation. And uh, the easiest way to do that is to do all of my calculations with real returns. So I take the, I mean, I have data on equity returns and bond returns. And uh, right off the top, I take out the inflation rate from that. So, so all my calculations are done uh, in, in real dollars. So that means when, when I tell you uh, somebody starts off with a $1 million portfolio and uh, starts withdrawing $35,000 a year, and that $35,000 in actual terms would then be adjusted for inflation. And and when I say that somebody ends up with only 80% of the initial portfolio uh, after after 30 years, I mean $800,000 already adjusted for inflation. So so that's where I'm coming from. Everything is, is in real dollars. So all the calculations here are, are kosher and are adjusted for inflation. And if anybody wants to do uh, something where, say, I want to I want to adjust my expenses for a little bit less than inflation. Say I want to walk down my expenses a little bit because I consume less as I age. I can do that too, but I will do that at the back end and not at the front end. So, and 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 then the second question: What is that interval of time where you should be worried about drawdowns? And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's probably around the first five years, maybe ten years. So you don't you don't have to worry about say 1987. You had a very big drawdown in October. S and P went down by 21 percent, but then it recovered very quickly. So, so it has to it has to be multiple things. It has to be an extended drawdown. It has to be deep enough and extended enough. Say say something like a recession, something like 2001 or 2008 or the or the Great Depression in the 1930s. So just just one little bit of a drawdown over the first 5 years that is not going to make a big difference. Okay, yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And I guess what I want to set up for you is, is just something like bare bones simple right? And mm-hmm. this, this might be a little weird, but just bear with me here. So someone comes to you and says, hey, Ern, I have $40,000 a year of expenses, you know, in 2017. I've heard mm-hmm. there's this 4% rule, right? So 25 times my annual expenses, $1 million. I have 
you know, $1 million, let's just for argument's sake, in split between 401k and regular taxable savings, I want to retire because I heard that on the internet. What is, what is your response? Talk me through like what you would say to that person, what they have to consider, what they're, and let's just say again, for argument's sake, they're 40 years old. Okay. So I guess I come up to you at a cocktail party. I know you're bigger and I say that. What do you respond to me? So I like the 4% rule conceptually. I think, I think it's good to have one round number and one rule of thumb. But what I noticed in, in my research is that you can't just pick one fixed number and that works all the time. So, for example, in today's environment, we have relatively expensive equities, very low bond yields, and you probably want to give that 4% a little bit of a haircut. I don't, I don't know if you guys use that term too, haircut. That's a kind of a financial term. So, we, we, so, you, so you, give the, you give the 4% rule a haircut. That means you have to reduce it a little bit uh, to account for the fact that we are not in an average equity and bond valuation regime. And uh, so, so there's there's uh, there's two two dimensions where we have to make adjustments to that four percent rule of thumb, and that's uh, one is over the time series. In different years, we would have to start with a different safe withdrawal rate uh, because sometimes equities are very cheap. Then you can probably scale up that four percent and make it five percent or six percent. And then in some years, say the late '90s, early 2000s, you probably want to reduce it all the way maybe to 3% or 2.8%. So there's the time series variation of what should be a sustainable withdrawal rate. And then there's obviously also idiosyncratic factors. So so your personal factors, how much do you expect in pensions? Do you get a government pension that's inflation adjusted? Do you get a corporate pension that's probably a lot less generous and then it's not inflation adjusted? How old are you? How many years do you have to bridge to social security? Does your wife get social security? So all of these make so much of a difference difference that, uh, again, so that 4% rule is really only the starting point. We have to look a lot more into the details, uh, both into where we are right now with equities and bonds, and then where you are in your personal finances too. All right. So obviously there are a lot of factors and it just can't be as simple as the 4% rule and ride off into the sunset. But going with this, we're at a cocktail party, like where can I game all this out? Can I enter all this information in somewhere? You know, what kind of research would I have to do to figure out, will this work for my life? Like, is that something that's available? Are there resources you recommend? So I have in part seven of my series, I posted a Google sheet where you can enter your personal information. uh, What is your retirement horizon? uh, And then you can enter these additional supplemental cash flows uh, over the next, say, 60 years. So you can can start your, your social security, say, 25 years into your retirement. You can enter the numbers as percentages of your portfolio. And then you can see what what would be the the historical safe withdrawal rates what would be the failure rates of say the four percent rule or, or the three and a half percent rule so there are some resources out there seafire uh, sim obviously has some simulation tools not sure if seafire sim can is really that user friendly where you can enter specific amounts that start at a certain time and and then the wife's pension starts and then your social security starts and then your wife's social security starts I mean I, I can do that all in that spreadsheet uh, I'm not sure if there are many other places on the web where you can do that. Alternatively, if you want to use my Excel sheet, you can take all of your expenses on a monthly basis and you can add them up and down at the bottom, it'll give you a total. (laughs) 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 So that's there too. We'll put those side by side and you use whichever one is uh, more useful for you. (laughs) All right. I'll I'll go with Aaron on this. So (laughs) 
<laughs> so we're in part seven. We will uh, we will link to that in the show notes oh, sure. for everybody out there, and people can just enter their own information and just use that going forward, right? Yes, and and then the the, the one thing you have to do is this is the one clean sheet. You cannot edit that yourself. You ha- first have to save your own copy before you can make changes for obvious reasons, because I don't want people to mess with my formulas in there. Of course. Yeah, that sounds great. That's a wonderful resource. And just to our audience, we're going to link to that in the show notes. But if you end up thinking that would be useful to you, uh, definitely go check that out. And if you use it, please give bigger in your feedback. Let them know whether or not it helped. It's that sort of feedback that allows, I know at a personal level, it allows me to iterate what I'm building. And I'm sure he would appreciate hearing from you as well. So We want to explore sequence of return risk, and we're going to try to just maybe set up this very simple case study that will allow us to illustrate a few different points. And we're going to start with maybe the year 2000. So I believe that at this point, and this is kind of predating my investment timeline a little bit, but the tech bubble has gotten your investment vehicles to the point where you now have a million dollars and you pull the trigger on your five date and you retire in the year 2000 and then everything just falls apart. And you watch your $1 million portfolio uh, descend down to somewhere in maybe the 400s, something something along those lines. And you're now drawing your expenses, which you're withdrawing $40,000 a year. Earn, help us explore with this particular very simple, maybe overly simplistic case study. Help us explore how sequence of return risk would affect this poor, unfortunate individual that pulled their fry trigger at this exact time. Right. So the good news is that from the previous peak, say in, in 2000 or 2001, the equity market eventually recovered again in 2007. So you get back to a new high. But the problem is, if you used your portfolio not as a buy and hold, but you were making withdrawals from your portfolio during that time, then you have taken withdrawals right at the wrong time when the when the portfolio was down. And so that means even though the equity market had recovered by 2007, you are now down to, say, $750,000 in, uh, in 2008. And that's when the next recession hits you. So that's 2008 and nine. get another walk down to, say, maybe around $500,000. So that means if, if you had started in 2000 with the 4% withdrawal rule, you would now be down to somewhere around $600,000. And the problem is that when your portfolio is down to $750,000 or $500,000 and you keep withdrawing these $40,000, your effective withdrawal rate is now no longer 4%. It's 4% relative to the initial portfolio value, but it's much higher. It's 5%, it's 6%, it's probably around 8% at the bottom. Uh, and that means even though the equity market recovers again, you have compromised the portfolio so much that you're now much, much down relative to the initial portfolio value, even though a buy and hold investor obviously would have not just recovered, but would have probably doubled the money by now. And uh, it's it's because you were making these withdrawals at depressed prices. So that cost of, of selling shares at a low price and selling more shares when prices are down the most and then missing the recovery on these additional shares, that's basically the distilled version of sequence of return risk. And that's why even though the average returns might have looked decent during that period of time, your portfolio is very much compromised by now. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. And at the same point, I think that gives us a platform in which we can explore three different scenarios because sequence of return risk isn't bad for everybody. Depending on where you are on your FI plan can actually be a lever that allows you to accelerate your results. And there's three different scenarios that I know you talked about in this article. And we touched on one of them, the early retiree that pulled their trigger right at 2000. And then there's the saver and then there's the buy and hold investor. And all of us at some point will fall into 
any one of those categories, just depending on where we are with our own personal timeline. But I think it would be interesting to hear you explore with those three different scenarios. And we've covered the first one, the early retiree, but with the other two, the saver and the buy and hold investor, how secrets of return risk can affect you depending on what scenario you fall in. Oh, sure. So you take the flip side of this. So instead of selling shares when prices are depressed, imagine you buy shares when prices are depressed and you take that exact same case study. But instead of withdrawing money, you take a person who starts with zero dollars at the beginning and then starts saving. That person is going to get this this effect from what some people call dollar cost averaging. Right. So you buy equities at very depressed prices. I, I have some tax lots from 2009 where I bought the S&P 500 index. At, at around 700 points. And I still have those. So imagine the return on those investments. So the good news is that if you are a saver during those drawdown periods, you actually make very, very good returns. You actually beat the, the buy and hold investor in terms of the internal rate of return. So that's a lot of people in the FI community. They actually benefited from these drawdowns. So there's essentially a zero sum game between the saver and the retiree. Because if you take the cash flow, say you take a retiree who started with a million dollars, dollars in 2000 and you take big earn who started investing in 2000 with zero dollars and you imagine that what i invest is exactly the same amount of what the retiree takes out then then our two cash flows would add up to exactly a buy and hold investor so that means that if the retiree is doing worse than the buy and hold investor, then I, by definition, I have to do better than the buy and hold investor. So in in many ways, these recessions, they have actually helped me personally, even though it would have been a horrible time to to retire during that time. So I want to contrast a couple things here. Help me understand what is the position in this scenario of the buy and hold investor? What is he doing as opposed to the saver? Okay. So I mean, the buy and hold investor, that is the one pure case who doesn't care if there's a drawdown in between or not. So the buy and hold investor, worries for for the most part purely about what is the point-to-point return and well some people would argue now well but what about dividends right you have the dividend flows that is reinvested but I already take that into account so basically every return that I calculate is already it's already the price return plus the dividend yield but anyway so the buy and hold investor if the S&P 500 doubled during that time and you didn't have any additional cash flows into the portfolio or out of the portfolio then you don't care about what is the sequence of return you had the bad returns early on or the good returns early on, the buy and hold investor is shielded from sequence of return risk. So it's only the savers and the retirees that feel the sequence of return risk. Now, of course, you could say that obviously the buy and hold investor may still worry about a drawdown early on because you might lose your nerve and and sell your stocks. But say if somebody in 2000 started with a million dollars and is a buy and hold investor between now and then and didn't open their statements and didn't do anything stupid didn't sell the stocks at the bottom, they should not worry about sequence of return risk. Okay. So to overly simplify these things, your three different scenarios are your buy. So starting with 2000, essentially to maybe today or just 10 years later, the buy and hold starts with a million, doesn't touch it, essentially doesn't open anything. 10 years later, it is what it is. There's there's no activity there. The saver starts with nothing in 2000. And as all of this stuff is happening, they're actively plowing money into the like VTSAX or the stock market 
market and yep. they are accumulating the gains and they're benefiting because their money is going farther because they're buying at depressed prices. And then the the other scenario was the retiree, in this case, the person that was having to draw down. And unfortunately, because of the depressed prices, they were having to draw out more than they really wanted to in terms of a percentage of their net worth. Those are the three scenarios. Exactly. Yep. yep. Okay. And it's a, in, in some way, it's a zero sum game, right? Because the, the two, the retiree and the saver, they add up exactly to the to the buy and hold investor. So so we, they can't all do both the retiree and the saver. They can't both be on the same side of the buy and hold investor. So one person is always doing better and the other person is always doing worse than the buy and hold investor. Yes. And the and, retiree is angry when the saver is happy and the saver yeah, is happy. Exactly. when the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, I want to go back to scenario one for a second, because if I was in the audience, I would be asking more questions. So so I'm going to try to do it, do it to you if you don't mind. So, OK, we set up that scenario where they retired in 2000 with a million dollars. Hypothetically, it went down to 500,000 in 2001 and they had $40,000 a year of expense. Talk us through the thought process of that early retiree at 41 years old at that point. That was, we said they retired at 40. So now they're at an 8% withdrawal rate. They have a $500,000 nest egg. They're taking out $40,000 a year. Now, I assume just based on no math whatsoever that I would be in trouble, but that's obviously with no information yeah. whatsoever. But talk me through that person and then talk me through like, okay, there are corrections all the time. The stock right. market goes down 10%. It goes down 15, 20, you know, whatever it is, right? Like talk me through when should someone be worried? And because uh, I think that's sure. what people really want to know. The math is going to be beyond most people, even a lot of smart people, but people need to know just kind of back of the envelope. Like what do they need to think about? as far as sequence and returns and, and withdrawals. Right. So, I mean, the first thing that, that I wanted to point out, I do all these calculations and then people could criticize me and they have criticized me and, and I know where they're coming from. Well, nobody would really do this because what I calculate is, so somebody takes these $40,000 out from the portfolio every single year, stubbornly, right? Completely non-responsive to what happened to the portfolio. And then you see what happens, you iterate that forward and then you see if they run out of money and when they run out of money. And of course you could argue nobody, nobody in their right mind would ever do that. But I mean, forget about, so imagine somebody is down to $200,000. Would you still take out $40,000 a year? Of course not. So somewhere along the way, you would have already adjusted what you're doing. So the good news is that probably in the real world, nobody will ever literally run out of money because you you would already make adjustments way before uh, you get into, probably way before you even get down to half of your portfolio. And obviously you see your portfolio drop to $900,000, $800,000, $700,000. I mean, I would probably argue that if you are down to $750,000, $700,000, that you probably want to at least temporarily reduce your withdrawals. So in, in, in that sense, what, what I'm calculating is that stubborn $40,000 a year, what you would be doing in, in the real world would be at some point you would then reset the clock and you say, well, now I'm down to $700,000. So take that times 4%. And now I'm down to $28,000. And uh, the $12,000 shortfall, I have to make that up somehow. I can probably make it up through a little bit of less spending. And uh, the other way would be a side hustle. So that's, that's how this should work in reality. So in, in some sense, it, it boils down to what do you define as a failure in the simulations? In my simple calculations that are just 
using this stubborn 4% and then you keep the same withdrawals in real terms. The failure is you run out of money. Of course, in real life, the failure is not a zero one thing, right? It's a question of, well, do I have to reduce my withdrawals and for how long do I have to do that? And I have some simulations for that too. There are some very simple to follow rules. I think that's parts nine and 10 of the series where you make adjustments to your withdrawals if your portfolio is underwater. And by the way, you also do the opposite. If your portfolio performs really, really well, you can also increase your your withdrawals because you don't want your portfolio to grow from $1 million to $5 million because that means you haven't really withdrawn enough money. Yeah, I love the real world applications there. That's that's hugely helpful. So you would say on average, let's say again, we retired and the stock market went down 10%. That's not something that someone should be like catastrophically worried about, right? That's that's fairly right. within the realm of reason. But you're arguing 20, 25% in the first year or two, that's something that you might need to really sit down and reconsider the real world implication. Is that, am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you probably want to think about, well, what happened here? Is there really a recession where earnings are now down? Is this something that would permanently drag down the profitability of the economy, yeah, I would probably I would probably take down the withdrawal amount. If this is something like, say, the Brexit happened or we had these in 2015, we had some of the volatility due to Chinese devaluation. And I think the stock market went, went down pretty significant percentage. But I, I asked myself, well, is, is how fundamental is that really to the US economy? So even, even if the stock market is down by 10%, it doesn't really mean that future profits of the US economy will be down by 10%. So I, you probably can take it down by much less than the 10% drop in the stock market. I love what you've done. You've taken it and you've made it more applicable. It allows you to use it and also to appreciate the information that you have on your website more because now it adds some balance to that. So I, I just love your perspective. I love how you brought in some of the global economics into this story. Very, very cool stuff. Really, in our community, we have so many different options with how we can be flexible because our lifestyle is already so much less than that of just your average person day to day. Earn, when I was preparing to do this, I obviously spent a fair amount of time reading through the ultimate guide to the safe withdrawal rates. And one line particularly stood out to me as just highlighter, asterisk, bullseye. Let's talk about this. And that line said, if you're, if you're unlucky, you can get screwed twice by sequence of return risk. <laughs> let's, let's explore this poor, unfortunate person that's getting screwed not once, but twice by sequence of yes. return risk. Who is this person? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, as I said before, there is this zero-sum feature between the saver and the retiree. And then depending on how the returns fall, you could do better than the buy-and-hold investor or you could do worse than the buy-and-hold investor. But it doesn't always have to go in the, in the same direction. So I was looking for any 30-year window where the first 15-year window was hurting the saver and the second 15-year window was hurting the retiree. And that would be our candidate for getting screwed over twice because the first 15 years, this is when this person is uh, adding to to his or her portfolio. This is the accumulation phase. And then the second 15-year window is when you start to draw down your portfolio. So basically what I was looking for is when the when does the saver get hurt by sequence of return risk is if you have astronomical 
good returns during the first 10 years, then the last window, the five years towards the end of your accumulation, you will have very underwhelming returns. And the reason why that's a problem for the saver is that you had very good returns early on, but that's when you had relatively little invested in the market, right? Because the last five years of your of your accumulation phase, that's where the meat is. That's where you have your, on average, that's where you have the, the biggest portfolio value. And so during those last five years, you have poor returns. And then also the first five years of your retirement, you again have poor returns. So that's, I mean, the, the good news is that it took me quite a lot of time to find that 30-year window where you can get screwed over twice. But there is a window like that. And I mean, think about it. So imagine 10 years ago, let's say eight years ago, you started saving for retirement right at the bottom. So we could have another cohort like that in the making. So the last eight years were very good for stocks. If say the next five years are underwhelming, then so those would be the last five years before you retire. So it's possible that there could be a cohort right now, say who wants to retire in five years. They could look a little bit like that. So that that's that's why I pointed out this this case study. So I guess the example you have here, 1959, was that the sweet spot right. or the or the, the, the rotten yeah. spot for this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So sweet spot from an academic point of view, but obviously very rotten for this uh, uh, for this cohort. Obviously, and this yes. person's getting like 20 percent rates of return, but they only have a couple grand in the market. And right. then as they get up to the point where maybe they have 20, 30,000, 100,000, then they get just no returns. Exactly. And then right as they need the money, everything tanks and they have negative returns or they have very, very low returns continuing for the first five years. And they just are wondering, why would anybody invest in the stock market? Why would anybody do yes. this? Worst idea ever. Yes, yes, yes. So, and so, yeah, it's it's bad timing and it's, well, it's bad luck. It's, it's not even timing, right? Because, I mean, you are young when you're young and you do your retirement contributions when when you have the income. So it's, it's not even a matter of timing. It's, it's just literally bad luck. So that that's, that that's all you can do. Okay. All right. Well, noted and um, cross my fingers. Don't retire in 1959. <laughs> Don't retire in 1959. There's your takeaway. There's your actionable point. <laughs> I think the next place for us to go with this conversation is to talk about how to alleviate sequence of return risk. Now, some of it, as we just said, is just luck. There's just there's just time. There's time in, there's time out. But if you know what the problem is, there's ways to soften it at the margins. And so I think where we'd like to take this next is, what can we do to soften the margins of sequence of return risk? Uh, sure. So actually, I haven't really written that that blog post yet but i i can i i've i've hinted at it in in part 16 so i mean obviously the sequence of returns the reason why you have poor returns or good returns is is all driven by equities it's not so much driven by bonds even though there obviously some some diversification benefit but it's mostly done because of the equity risk the equities they have the big drawdowns during the recession so obviously you have the one lever that you could use is you start retirement with pretty good sized bond portfolio so you use that as a diversifier and then you reduce your bond share over time. And uh, so that that would be one reason to, to alleviate some of that sequence of return risk. One of the tools that I know you've teased has been this idea of using the Bogleheads and endorsed VPW rule. Do you want to talk about this idea of fixed versus percentage mm-hmm. withdrawals? Uh, yes, sure. So, I mean, there, there are obviously different ways of uh, modeling that. But as I said in the beginning, the, the, the whole idea of just set it and forget it and making withdrawals no matter what happens to your portfolio it's is it, a little bit silly i think it's a good starting point to see say what would be what would be reasonable rates but in in practice nobody would literally do that so and what what people have proposed is well why not just take 
say, a 4% rule, but you do 4% every year, you withdraw exactly 4% of the portfolio value at that time. So you could do that as a fixed percentage every year. You could also account for the fact that obviously as you age, you can even withdraw a little bit more than 4% because your entire horizon is shrinking. So that's what the VPW rule does. So, And you can provide the link on the Bogleheads forum. So they have a formula for adjusting this, uh, this time-varying withdrawal rate. So that depends on your portfolio allocation and your age and your retirement horizon. And I think it's a nice tool. It will uh, guarantee that you will not run out of money, literally, just like in that fixed withdrawal case. But the problem is that obviously your withdrawals year over year can become very volatile. In fact, they will become roughly as volatile as your portfolio. If you have the stomach to do that, and you can have the same kind of drawdowns in your consumption as you could face in the stock market, then I think that's probably the way to go. And then the second idea that you had, which is really interesting, and I've never really read anywhere else, it definitely sounds like some advanced stuff, but this idea of literally mortgaging your retirement. Do you want to just, we don't need to go super in depth into that, but do you want to unpack that idea for us? Well, so the one idea, and by the way, this is this is to, to reduce sequence of return risk for the saver. This is not for the retiree. This is just entirely for the saver. And uh, so what people have pointed out is that if you have this risk of potentially having high returns early on, and you mostly miss out on the high returns early on in your accumulation phase because you haven't really invested a lot of money, one way would be is to invest in equities on margin. So you actually mortgage some of your future 401k contributions and you, I mean, there, there are some people, for example, Physician on Fire has a, has a post on that where you, I mean, some people just simply front load their 401k contributions on in January. So you, you make your entire 401k contributions for the year all in January. I mean, that, that would be that would be one form of, of doing that because uh, you already invest 401k contributions that you were planning to do for the rest of the year. And then this, this concept of mortgaging your retirement is, is taking that a little bit further. And you say that, well, instead of investing my 401k contributions over the next 10 years, and I do it all piecemeal by piecemeal, I am going to front load that over the entire 10 years. Now, that that definitely takes a lot of stomach. And I personally don't recommend that. I, I threw that out there as an as an extreme case. But what that definitely tells me is that a lot, a lot of people are very proud of paying down their mortgage uh, with accelerated payments. So the lesson from this mortgage your retirement is maybe you don't want to go and invest in equities on margin, but maybe you don't accelerate your mortgage payments and you plow every last dollar that you have, you plow that into the stock market early on and think about the mortgage later. So don't pay down your mortgage faster than you have to. That's the way I draw the conclusion from that research. I personally would not recommend going into equities when you're young and doing that on margin. Yeah, I'm sure that many people, when they hear anything about doing equities on margins, feel like this pit in their stomach turnover. But I like the pivot that you made on that in talking about how you're increasing your risk of sequence of returns by paying down your mortgage instead of making this other choice. And I know it's a battle that is constantly waged between the psychology of being able to have extremely high levels of cash flow early on in your life by not having a mortgage versus the math that tells you that by not having more invested, you're just sacrificing the potential gains in your future. Right. One other thing about the mortgage pay down. So because what you would be doing is imagine you plow every single last dollar of cash flow into the mortgage and nothing into the stock market. Yeah, sure. You you pay down your mortgage. But then 
when you're done with your mortgage, then you have all of this extra cash flow, which means that you would concentrate your investments into equities into a shorter time window. And you have very high flows into the stock market all throughout a shorter time window. And what everything we've learned about sequence of return risk is that the problem is that you could have bad luck with picking exactly the wrong time window to invest in equities. And by spreading it out as far as you can, and by making the equity investments, spreading them out over multiple business cycles, you would alleviate some of that sequence of return risk. So that's why I personally, I don't recommend paying down a mortgage early. Uh, if you're young, try to get a high, as high an equity share and as high an equity portfolio as, as possible, as, as early as possible. And um, so for, forget about paying down the mortgage very early in life. So this is perfect. And it's actually something we see on a somewhat regular basis is people that remind us that Dave Ramsey actually asks his callers many times, if you had a paid for home, would you go out and borrow money at 3% to invest? And I think what Big Earn is basically saying here is yes. And he would do it to avoid sequence of return risk. And while Brad and I, I don't think either of us would actually recommend going out and borrowing money at 3% because there's nothing tied to that. I can definitely see the beautiful compromise there when talking about the mortgage. And this is not the final discussion on that, but if you want to know what the case looks like from the other side, this is where you start with that. I think this is a compelling case that Ern is making. So Ern, I'm always curious how people react in their real lives. So there's the theory and there's reality. And it sounds like you're falling, your reality comes pretty close to the theory, especially there with the mortgage. Talk me through your thoughts on front loading, since you did mention that a couple of minutes ago. And also like, what does your investment portfolio look like at a high level? Like what percentage oh, in equities sure. and, and those type yeah. of things? Tell us, you know, the real world of what Earn has going on. It's actually, I have to, I have to admit that with my current portfolio size, whether I front load my 401k contributions or not, I, I don't think it really makes a difference. So personally, I don't really do a lot of the front loading anymore. If, if I look at my portfolio size, it, it doesn't really matter anymore if I put the whole $18,000 into the 401k plan on January 1st, or if I spread it out over, over the 12 months. So I have to admit, whether it's laziness or, or convenience, I'm, I'm actually not even doing that personally. But I think in general, it's a very good idea. And then, so in terms of the earned portfolio, I, I mean, I, I'm obviously very equity heavy. And uh, so I have relatively little invested in bonds. In retirement plans, I'm pretty much 100% equities. I also have pretty significant home equity, which we will liquidate. So we're going to sell our apartment eventually when we move to a lower tax state. Uh, and then I've started to invest in real estate a little bit through through private equity funds. So that's a multifamily real estate. And then I, I also like to do a lot of other exotic investments. And one of them would be options trading. So that's that's something that I, I developed a little bit of a niche. And uh, so I'm selling put options on equity index futures. And this would probably be a whole blog post, maybe a whole episode almost on its own. But I also, on the side, I'll do a little bit of exotic and non-standard investments. And Ern, we basically tell people to just stay the course and continue mm -hmm. investing month after month, year after year, you know, as long as they're in their earning and accumulation stage. Like, do you ever look at the economic realities or the more in-depth information that many people either might not have or might not have the expertise for? Like, do you look at that and adjust your equity portfolio accordingly? So, yes, I do. So, for example, some of these more exotic uh, investments, they came up 
because I I think that especially going forward, there may not be as much of a equity expected return as I hope for. I mean, this is, this goes back to this whole uh, Jack Bogle discussion. But I also concede that I think it's a really bad idea for retail investors to try to time the market. It's it's very hard and I don't want to do it. In fact, I mean, it's, it's not like I'm shifting money out of equities. I'm still investing in equities. I still kept the, the existing equity investments that I had. It's simply that I started making new investments more into some of the, the exotic investments. So it's just part of it is for diversification and part of it is uh, I'm getting a little bit more pessimistic on, on expected equity returns. Now. Well, let, let's talk about that. So I got an open letter from Matt to our Facebook group and it comes down to what you're discussing. And he says, I've been pondering our ongoing dialogue, which I would boil down to this. In my estimation, the FI community is greatly modeling consecutive 8% year over year returns while its forefather Bogle is calling for 4% over the next 10 years, which is supported by Schiller's PE or CAPE ratio being at its second highest in history, 29 versus its historical average of 17. So Bogle is essentially urging investors to temper their expectations accordingly, at least for for the more short-term period of time. I'd be interested in getting your perspective on that. Essentially, what I heard you just say is you've already hit your number through equities and you're making a diversity play with some of these more exotic vehicles. And the place that you would still recommend that the retail investor, which is our community, start is with what we've been talking about over and over again, which is just index investing. Right. First of all, I hope that you put the link for the Bogle interview. That's actually, uh, when I read that, I was really amazed because here's one guy who is the, the icon and the idol of passive investments. And so he suddenly tells us, well, well there is some ver- time varying equity expected return. So this, this t- take that for a while to let that sink in. And uh, But again, if you look at what Bogle says in general, he does not say you should use this to start timing the market. He doesn't say run for the hills and sell your equities and invest in, well, in what else anyway? So do, do you want to invest in bonds? Because bond returns are also very low. Uh, at least for bond returns, the bad thing about bond returns is they are low and they, there's no upside at all, right? So the uh, treasuries are paying something like 2.3% uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, there, there's no upside. So you buy, you buy one 10-year bond, you are going to make 2.5%, uh, not more and not less over the next 10 years. So so obviously, Bogle doesn't say that we should now sell stocks. I mean, in fact, we should stay the course and um, we will have a little bit lower than expected returns, the lower returns than we got used to. But what Bogle says is that it's going to take these 10 years to normalize equity valuations again. And then the good news is once equity valuations are normalized again, where profits have grown and and the stock price has grown a little bit less than profits, that the CAPE ratio or the the PE ratio, depending on what measure you prefer, that will have normalized again. And once that normalized again, then we can go back again to to these 8% uh, expected return for equity. So is this this is just a temporary thing. And if we make it through those 10 years, then everything will be good again after 10 years, hopefully. Perfect. I love, first of all, how you've so structured your thought process in this article series. I think it's the perfect parallel storyline to the JL Collins stock series. This 17 or 18 or 20 part ongoing series,
series on the safe withdrawal rates. It's a must read for anybody who's gone down the rabbit hole to FI. And what I love is this line in part 17. And you said the only thing more offensive than the 4% part is the word rule. And in this article, you made the pitch that while sure, let's go ahead and leave that in place. Let's call it the 4% rule of thumb. And that's where I wanted to bring this thing to a close because it so perfectly parallels what Brad and I have been preaching for some 50 odd episodes, which is that you don't have to base this on some fixed number. You live in reality. And in reality, you could, there is some flexibility. There's some variables that can't be accounted for by just having this one 4% rule. Although I love it that we do have something to point to. It's a starting place. It's not a finished place. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how we can start with 4% and how we can adjust from there. Right, right. So first of all, I came up with this great analogy. So so let me go through this analogy. So for example, on our smartphones now, we all have driving directions, right? So you say, I want to go from my home to the airport. I want to know how long is it going to take me to go to the airport? And that commute time is going to be very dependent on what time of the day I leave, what weekday I leave. It's even dependent on whether I'm a fast driver or not so fast driver. And uh, so the analogy of the 4%, of the original 4%, rule would be so imagine we we take 24 people and we send them off to the airport and the first person goes at 1 a.m the second person goes at 2 a.m and so on the 12th person goes at noon and the 24th person goes at midnight and then we take some kind of an average of these 24 people and that might be a pretty good rule of thumb if we don't even know yet what time of the day or or what weekday we are going to the airport but that average commute time is going to be completely useless if you already know that you will go at 4 p.m. during rush hour so just like just like that example we, we can't have a 30 minute rule for going from my home to the airport it has to be more customized than that and the, and the same is going on with the with the safe withdrawal rules. So it has to depend on what are our expected returns for, for equities and bonds. And it has to depend also on these on these idiosyncratic factors. That's perfect. And so I know in context, you've already mentioned several of these. We've talked about being able to make adjustments for equity and bond valuations. We've talked about making adjustments for these idiosyncratic factors like your age, social security, pensions. I think that is the piece that when people are just looking at a number, they don't want to talk about. But in the context of what we're trying to accomplish, which is to have a conversation, which is to attach real lives and real examples to this, we can we can do that. And what you then can find, depending on where you are in age and life and life cycle, you can find a model of someone that has a similar situation to yours and find out what they're doing. Because although there's not one single answer for everybody for every scenario, there are tools, there are examples that you can use and incorporate in your life to get your ultimate success and to make these numbers work for your specific situation. So um, I think that basically kind of brings that that accomplishes what I wanted to get out of this discussion specifically with the 4% rule and what we should be thinking about as we approach 2018 but I know there's so many other questions Brad and I we can't just let you go we've been wanting to do this for so long we want to know your thoughts on several other just kind of wild card questions and this is aside for the hot seat so we have the hot seat as well but all right yeah we're not going to skip that but uh let's we did have a couple other kind of tandem questions to throw at you if you would be willing to tackle these Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Jonathan could see me furiously writing things down during the episode. This is a a wonderful opportunity to get to speak with you. So yeah, kind of random, but just bear with me. So we're talking about Bogle's prediction of 4% returns over the next 10 years. There are many people in the FI community who hope to reach FI and potentially retire early in the next 10 years. What, What worries you about someone in that 
specific instance? Is it these lower returns? Is it sequence of return risk? And even other wild cards, we're talking about healthcare, social security, like talk us through how if, if someone came to you and said, all right, this is my scenario, what would you advise them? Okay, so I mean, in some ways, somebody who is pretty far detached from retirement, say they are planning retirement in five to 10 years, they would, again, the sequence of return risk, they would benefit from basically a stock market crash as as soon as possible right so because they want to they want to have that same advantage that i had uh when when i left grad school i, I graduated right around the, the 2001 market crash so i contributed to my 401k at, at rock bottom prices so the people who are planning retirement in maybe 10 years from now i guess the the worst thing that could happen to them is again getting screwed over by being that 1959 cohort uh, you get good returns early on and then right when you retire, that's when the, the right before you retire, that's when you have your weak returns. But then, I mean, obviously, also uh, a lot of the the other things you mentioned is basically the political risk, right? And that's something that we don't really have a good handle on it. So you see, at least for for the stock market, for the bond market, you can come up with some kind of a risk model, right? You can people have looked at well, what is what is the standard deviation of returns for equities and bonds? So there's something measurable, and we have a sense of what is high risk, what is low risk. Uh, we have a sense of, uh, yeah, I mean, every once in a while you get a, you get an X percent drop in the stock market and we just have to, this, this, this happened before and that will happen again. But for the political risk, this is very hard to assign probabilities and, and risk to that, right? What happens to, what happens to the Affordable Care Act? Uh, what if you have, uh, what if you have tailored your retirement budget to these generous subsidies from Obamacare and what if they go away at some point? So that's, I mean, these are all risks. And unfortunately, they are very hard to quantify. It is very hard to quantify what is the retirement cohort that is uh, that might see their social security cut. So it's, it's very hard to quantify that. And these are some of the things that I, that I worry about. Okay. Here's an alternate wildcard question for you. So you have negligible net worth and you inherit a $100,000 windfall. And what do you do with it? Uh, I think that the retail investor doesn't want to get into timing the market. And uh, so, so, I mean, I, I would just, I would just invest the windfall in the stock market. And because you're, again, you're starting out, you want to get that equity, that uh, equity exposure as high as possible, as quickly as possible. So I, I would still invest it in the stock market. Dollar cost average uh, or front load? Um, I wrote an article about that. So in, in fact, if you could, if, if you are just worried that, well, but what if I invest just right the day before a big drop? Uh, in fact, that's even on my mind. And that's even on my mind for, uh, for, for smaller investments than $100,000. Uh, if, if that's if that's on your mind, I mean, I am, yeah, I mean, do the dollar cost averaging if if that calms your mind. But again, I mean, there's research out there that shows that you, you don't want to do the co- dollar cost average because but you're driving to the airport at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think I would dollar cost average over 12 months I, or maybe 24 yeah. months. I, I think that's yeah. probably I would be trying. I, I think I would. Uh, yeah. And and so, so one compromise would be to to lower that that opportunity cost. If you if you have access to to credit uh, and you, you say you know the hundred thousand dollars arrives next month, well maybe already invest a little bit today. So do it. So take it out of your emergency fund if you have one, and uh, then do the then do another one third installment uh, when the money arrives, and then another one third installment the month after it arrives. And that way it's a it's a kind of a compromise. 
compromise, you spread out the investment, you lower the risk that you invested just at the wrong time. Uh, but you don't have the you, on, on average, you don't have the opportunity cost because you do a little bit before the windfall arrives and you, you invest a little bit after the windfall arrives. So that, that's kind of the best of both worlds. I have a blog post on that, too. Uh, well, yeah, we'll definitely link to it. Shoot me the link by email. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, one other one for you. Just a wild card here. So we consider ourselves first generation fire. But in many cases, many of us have parents that were existing outside of this construct, have not been exposed to it and did not have a plan. And maybe they have passively accumulated some amount of net worth, maybe $200,000 or 500000 somewhere in that range. It's not tr- traditionally what we would consider enough to cover all of their expenses, but they have something. Let's just say $200,000. And now they know that we are into personal finance and that we have all these ideas and they want our input on what they should do with that 200K. And it's all over the map. Where would we recommend they put it? Um, so I've actually had examples like that where people ask me, say, and, and ask me exactly that question. So my first response would be, first of all, get rid of all of your high cost, high expense ratio mutual funds. So I, I have seen some pretty, pretty jaw dropping uh, portfolio allocations that were recommended by financial planners or, or the, the, the local guy at the, at the local bank. And uh, so basically declutter your portfolio. And, and sometimes it's hard to declutter because if it's in a taxable account, you could uh, potentially look at uh, generating taxable capital gains, but certainly in retirement accounts. I mean, that has to be decluttered and it can be decluttered without tax consequences. Just move it over to Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab, uh, go into index funds. Uh, of course, the, the allocation stock versus bond, that would depend then on the on the age and the preferences. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's basically the first step is always check your check your expense ratios. All right, and my my last question here and, and we could pepper you with this stuff all day but uh but we'll stop with this is you know someone again comes up to you at some cocktail party they say they're 40 years old and they read this blog, right? And they want to retire. They've been diligent savers. They have let's say $40,000 a year of expenses. They have 30 times saved up. So they have 1.2 million and but you know what they plan to live to 95, right? That's 55 yep. years. I mean and their question is, is this really realistic? Is it real? And like, you know, is it just math? Do you tell them, hey, I've done the math 10 ways to Sunday and it just works? Or like, you know, what do you tell that person in just a minute or two to to actually explain like what that looks like in the real world? So, I mean, the good news is at 30x, you are in a very good shape. So, I mean, so some people would accuse me, you know, oh, he's against the 4% rule. So he's he's overly conservative. But I, I, I would actually say that, say, a 3% safe withdrawal rate, that might that might almost be too conservative. So so if somebody has 30x, uh, 30 times expenditures as, as a net worth, uh, capital markets over the very long term, they have returned 3.3% uh, in, in real terms. So equities on average have returned over 6%. So if you have a if you have a high enough equity share and uh, you don't do anything overly uh, irresponsible with your portfolio where, say, you have a big drop in equities and you shift out of equities and into bonds, uh, there's, there's sometimes retail investors have a bit of a, a problem of overreacting to to equity volatility. But if you, if you don't do anything irresponsible and you just stay the course and you, you stay invested, especially because you have a very long horizon, uh, you want to uh, you, you want to have a high equity share, then 3% or, or 3.3% safe withdrawal rate is uh, is not crazy. And uh, it's, it's, it's actually a very good, very good number to start. So is 3.5% kind of your mental number? That's where you land? Yeah. So three point. So I, my mental number is say 3 
3.25% for something completely bare bones where you completely write off social security and you don't consider it. And then um, I add a little bit from from social security and then I end up at about 3.5%. So that would have performed very well in the historical simulations. And then I did the kind of the back of the envelope calculations for the Bogle scenario. It would handle very well in the Bogle scenario. It's not too high, not too low. And uh, with the 3.5% withdrawal rate, you would draw down a little bit your portfolio over the next 10 years. Uh, and so say you start with a million dollars, you might end up with, uh, say, $900,000 after that. But keep in mind that the whole idea of Bogle's exercise is that, well, this is an adjustment period. So after 10 years, now the PE ratios, now the CAPE, is back to something more normal. And now we can, again, apply the higher expected equity returns. So all you want to do is don't withdraw too much and don't draw down your portfolio too much over the next 10 years, and and then you should be fine. Well, we have extracted every single little bit of juice that we thought we could get from you. And you're like a shell of a person, I'm sure, over there. But if you have the energy, I would like to invite you to tackle our hot seat. Are you ready for this? All right, let's get going. Okay. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, and we're back. All right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Aaron, first question, your favorite blog that's not your own. So I would, okay, I'm going to throw two at you. And so I will throw at you Physician on Fire and the Retirement Manifesto. And you've already you've already interviewed Physician on Fire. I think he's a really good guy. He has a great blog, great content, very uh, productive writer. Uh, but so, but in case you haven't already looked at Retirement Manifesto and you haven't interviewed him already, I mean, he he would be he would be a great guy uh, for this. So he ha- he has a great blog, and we have a few things in common. So he's an option trader too, and we so we have some some exchanges over that, and we, we talked on the phone before, and uh, is a very good writer. And he recently had a had a feature in the Business Insider. How I became a 401k millionaire. It's a it's a great it's a it's a great blog and, uh, and he has he has great content. He's a very nice guy. So if you if he's not on your short list already, I think he he could be could be a good guy for for you to interview too. Well, I am an official follower of him on Twitter, so I will reach out to him. Yeah, you should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but then again, I mean, physician on fire. I mean, we have some things in common uh, in terms of high income, and we plan a little bit of a higher uh, fire. I think it's called the fat fire uh, approach. So our our targeted spending is is a little bit higher, and we we have some of the same challenges, right? You you spend a lot of time in graduate school, and is you're a little bit late to the game. Uh, so so even though he's in medicine and I'm in finance, uh, we we actually have a lot more in common than you think. Well, what I love about our community is that we're not limited to one plan. Um, right. We're just we're just we just follow the math. 
And people make radically different choices based on their own desires, their own socioeconomic situations. But because they're doing it from a platform where they understand how the math works and how to get the math to work for their specific situation, we can have this conversation. We don't have to be dogmatic and say that you have to live on $20,000 a year. I am yeah. perfectly comfortable talking to people that are making a choice to live off eight times that. But yeah. they're, they're still operating from the same baseline, which is it's really cool and it expands the conversation. Yep, exactly. All right. Question number two, which is essentially a follow-up on this, your favorite article of all time, and you can uh, either reference one of your own or somebody else's. Okay, so I still have a small blog, so I have to blatantly self-promote that a little bit. So I guess I would have to go with the Safe Withdrawal Series Part 1, because that kind of put my blog on the on the map, and I got a lot of search engine traffic from that. So that started it all. So Nice. And, and yes, so, and we will so. do our best to promote that because we're big fans. <laughs> and we think that what you've done really does add value to something that, frankly, Brad and I could never have done. We, could, we are not capable at any level, no matter how much time we were willing to put in, we could not have put that together. And I don't think there are very many people that could have done that. So we will absolutely be linking to that on the, our show notes because it's now a, is it an 18 part series or a 17 part um, series? It's a 17, I think. Yeah. 17. Okay. So we touched on some of the highlights today, but we do encourage our audience. If you really want to understand this stuff and find a central place where you can go through each of these different complicated aspects, but in a way that is engaging and makes sense, definitely go check out this series. And frankly, I'd love to just have uh, two parallel storylines, one with the stock series from JL Collins on the left hand side and the one with the safe withdrawal rate series on the right. They really do go well together. It's like milk and cookies. I mean, you just can't separate them. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I mean, just being mentioned in the same sentence as, as Jim, uh, that's, uh, that's makes my day. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, number three, your favorite life hack. It would have to be geographic arbitrage because uh, I milked it every way I could. So I so going to college for free in my home country, then coming to the U.S. for grad school. Uh, this is where the good places are to go to grad school for economics. So there was, there was a very lucky decision. Geographic arbitrage, so we plan to move out of state and move to a cheaper location with lower housing prices, lower income tax, or hopefully no income tax. Geographic arbitrage is everywhere. Everybody can apply it. Everybody should apply it. It's a very powerful tool. Definitely a full episode. We're researching it now to figure out how we want to tackle it, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. So the good news is that I, I don't think I ever made any any disastrous mistakes. I, I never went into debt. And so and then even some, you know, some investments that didn't work out. I mean, I some sometimes, you know, you go for lunch, you come back from lunch and you lost thirty thousand dollars. But that's it's just because the <laughs> it's just it's just because the stock market went against you. And it's not a mistake, right? It's it's the risk you're taking investing in in risky assets. And that's that's why you make the excessive returns. But I, I would I would think that the worst mistake is that I was a little bit complacent about uh, about my savings rate as earlier in life as with after my first job I thought well I okay I have this uh, this relatively easy goal of making a million dollars by age 50 and uh, so I calculated okay this is my savings rate and I could have gone much higher than that but that's because I didn't know about Mr. Money Mustache and Go Curry Cracker and, and, and all the big thinkers in the fire community and I thought so I was saving something like 25% of my income and I thought hey I'm doing great I'm doing much better than the average American but uh, I, I guess I I, I could have reached the place where I am right now maybe a few years earlier if I if I hadn't been so complacent early in life. But again, I, I had a positive savings rate throughout my life. I, it just should have been a little bit higher. I feel like that really ties into the next question, and we may just be replaying that. But the advice you would give your younger self? Um, 
Yeah, I mean that that advice. But the the other advice I would give to younger self or or young people in general today is uh, don't get fooled by how people get affluent because we we have this mentality say of say of American Idol where in order to to get rich and famous you need this one big break but of course the most people especially in our community they didn't get rich because they made one lucky investment decision it's a process of many years of uh, investing diligently and if I look at my net worth today it's, it's not like I can't pin that down to one single decision or one lucky break or one one lucky investment in some startup that suddenly made me rich. It's all it's all the long process of small investments, regular investments, uh, staying the course when uh, when the equity market is down, and in fact investing more when the equity market is down because uh, equities are cheap. So this is how we got rich. It's not it's not one lucky break. It's a long process. Yeah, and that is the perfect summation of the Phi mentality in general. So yeah, I absolutely loved what you just said. That was perfect. And Erin, our bonus question is: Your favorite purchase that you made on Amazon? last year? Uh, so I would have to go with, uh, so so we bought a video editing software and I think it's, it's pretty cheap, it's something like $70 or so. And then what my wife does is she would look at our uh, vacation videos and usually for every vacation we have something like an hour or an hour and a half of raw footage and she distills this down into somewhere maybe eight to ten minutes but 12 minutes max and makes a video out of that and makes it look good and has some some background music and um, and we look at that every once in a while and you know it makes you happy makes it gives you gives you a smile on your face and you uh, you can a little bit relive that vacation experience and it's, it's definitely it's definitely the best best $70 spent in a long time because we get so much out of that. All right, Ern. Well, that basically brings us to a close. We like to finish up, first of all, just by thanking you for your time being so generous with it, but also how can people get in touch with you? We have a growing audience and many of them have been requesting this particular conversation for weeks, if not months. How can people get in touch with you? Well, they can go to our blog. It's earlyretirementnow.com. And uh, so I hope that people don't just, don't just go to the blog, but they also sign up for the, for the email. And uh, I'm, I, I promise you, you will get exactly one email per week, and that's the the announcement of the of the new blog post on Wednesday. So there's no spam mail, there's no nothing commercial coming ever. Uh, so again, make sure you visit earlyretirementnow.com and sign up for the free email updates. Okay. What an absolutely wonderful episode. And, and it just I cannot stress how excited we were to have Ern come on and share his time and his expertise with us. Uh, first of all, I'm excited about the Friday Roundup this week just because to get a chance to take all the information that we were able to explore today and then go into it with even more depth and talk about our light bulb moments and then share it with you. It's a very rewarding process. And so I don't have a whole lot else to add to this except the fire is spreading, my friends. And we'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.